This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Daniel DeBow. Daniel is a VP of product focused on demand at Shopify. In this episode, we discuss Daniel's thoughts on running a successful M&A process, what demand means at Shopify, if there's a difference between product market fit at a startup versus a large company like Shopify, and Daniel's love of good music. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniel DeBoe. Daniel, I'd like to start with uh, your education background. To me, it seemed like you were on the, the law track there. You did a psych undergrad. JD, MBA at U of T, Stanford Law, and some internships. How did that kind of change into being a founder? Did you always kind of want to be a founder and like law was like a good training ground? Uh, happy to be here today and happy to talk about that. Start at the beginning, I guess. Um, I did not know I wanted to be a founder. I wasn't kind of like the Alex P. Keaton, like running stocks and always into business when I was a kid. I just like organizing things like rock concerts and parties for my fraternity and like just being active and doing things. Um, 
I went to law school and business school because I was like, oh, this is four years. It seems like I'll have a long time to hide out before I have to figure out what I'm really going to do. Um, and I think if I had any plan, it was probably like, I guess I'll be a lawyer for a few years and then maybe go into business. But I didn't even know what that meant. Um, I was really lucky. Uh, one of my best friend's older brothers is an amazing entrepreneur. He had known me since I was like four years old. He was starting a new company. His name is uh, David Ossip. And he asked me if I wanted to help out. So I did. And uh, I kind of got hooked on the idea of building a startup. I was doing it while I was still in school. So him and the kind of the real co-founders were building engineering. They were building product. Uh, myself and one other friend were still in school, but we were working on fundraising, marketing, the business plan. Um, and then when the time came for me to graduate and go get a job, I, I just turned down the offers I had and said, no, this is much more interesting. And, and that was really it. So I was just super lucky to have stumbled into something. I worked there for almost seven years. I took a year off to go back to school. As you mentioned, uh, uh, I went did grad school in law in the States. Um, but that was an incredible journey. He was an amazing mentor, taught me a ton of things. I was very lucky to be early on on that team. Um, and then when we sold that company, I didn't really know how to have a regular job and, and wanted to start a new one. So that's how I got on this journey. So you started Ripple, which sold to Salesforce, and also Helpful, which sold to Shopify, where you now work. And I read your first round capital, how to run an M&A process article, which was really interesting. But I guess you've been involved, involved with a few different acquisitions. So I'd love you to talk about how is that, what is that acquisition process like? Not every founder gets to go through that. You've gone through it multiple times. And, you know, I can definitely link that first round capital article because it's quite informative. But like, what are some key things that you think are really important to a successful M&A process? First, I'd, I'd say let, let, let's make sure that uh, we did a whole podcast on that. So we should go check, check out the first round podcast if you like. And yeah, they did a really good job writing up that article. Um, I, if I were to distill it down to a few things, I, I think it is, um, first of all, there are different types of M&A. There is like, acquisition of a going concern and asset and then there is kind of you know smaller acquisition tuck in and then there's kind of aqua hire i've been part of all of those i think the commonality of all of them is relationship of trust um you want to be able to build relationships of trust even in the pure like we're buying an operating business um you know building relationships over time in an industry with potential acquirers in the right way gives you optionality as you go through your journey so if you know five or six different executives at large organizations who your company would solve a problem for um, when the moment comes, whether someone comes to you or it's time for you and you want to get out uh, or want to do something different, that relationship capital you've built is incredibly valuable to starting a process that's legitimate, creating competitive dynamics. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway, um, I, I would say. Um Maybe the other part is like, you know, relationships matter. Uh, so how you carry yourself, how you act, how you interact, um, that's really important. And it, it, it sort of goes on for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. you, you can't uh, kind of be a jerk and then all of a sudden turn around and, and expect people are going to really want you to be on their team. And with Helpful, it was ultimately acquired by Shopify where you're now working. Well, if you could, I don't know if you could share publicly, but what was that process like to Toby just 
email you out of nowhere, give you a cold call. Hey, we want to buy helpful. I'd love to learn yeah. a bit, maybe a bit about that story of like, okay, so you found it helpful. It's a successful company. And then, Hey, Shopify is looking to buy you. Uh, it's a long, complicated story. I, I think the high level is, um, that Shopify is an amazing business. My co-founder Farhan and I knew obviously a lot of executives at Shopify as they were growing, they were thinking about how to add really talented people to the team. And, um, it was more of a conversation that ensued over a fairly long period of time about whether, uh, Farhan and I would be really happy at Shopify. Um, and we decided we would, uh, we had been working for a while on helpful. We had tried a whole bunch of product pivots. Um, we had lots of time and runway to go. Um, but candidly, both of us wanted to help build a trillion dollar company and the odds of that happening we saw were just far better at Shopify than what we were doing. And we loved the mission. We loved the people. Uh, we loved the opportunity that placed for us. And, uh, that's kind of how it came together. It, it was relatively straightforward. Um, and, um, yeah, I haven't looked back, been super happy ever since I know Farhan is as well. And, uh, Shopify has been, uh, just been amazing as a place to be, uh, over the past little while. I mean, I, I think the, the best testament is both Farhan and I are kind of done the original deal that we did at Shopify and we're still here. Uh, this is kind of like the first time in my life that I've, I've had a regular job, uh, and, and I kind of love it. And what kind of made you love it? What kind of made you stay? Obviously, Shopify is a very successful company. I've heard like great culture, everything like that. But like what specifically inspired you to say like you obviously talked about making a trillion dollar company. Is there anything else that kind of motivated you there? I think there's a few things um, um, beyond the obvious. Uh, but the, the few things are the mission. I think Shopify is a mission-driven company from the top down, in private, over drinks quietly. It's not like a, a sort of pretense. It is a really mission-driven company. Toby and Harley and all the leaders genuinely care about making the world better by making it better for entrepreneurs. And that's something that I resonated with. Like as soon as I had a little bit of success, you know, almost uh, whatever, however long ago, I started investing in entrepreneurs. I was, <laughs> people thought I was nuts because I was putting money into very early, crazy ideas in Canada and that wasn't that common. And so, so I resonated with the idea of like doing that at scale. Uh, and I, I mean, I can tell you that especially during COVID, but every day when you walk around, you meet people, like I meet people, friends, kids who I meet, uh, friends of friends, like who are like, yeah, I have a Shopify store or like, yeah, Shopify helped us save our family business during COVID. That is super gratifying and something that you want to get up in the world to do. So that's number one um, is the mission. Um, number two is um, growth mindset. Shopify is a place that you are pushed hard to grow. Um, Harley will say, you know, you've kind of expected to be 40% better every year. And I love that. I can't, I would get bored uh, at a regular spot. And this is not a place that allows you to get bored. You are constantly being pushed your limits. I'm doing stuff now that I've never done in my life before, I have to learn new things, learn how to be a better leader, learn how to be a better manager, learn how to build products better, learn about new technologies. And I kind of love that. And because Shopify really views itself at, at being at the cutting edge of technology, the expectations are really high, um, but it's great. So number two, growth mindset. That's, that's keeping me here. I, I feel like I'm 
honestly doing the best work I've ever done in my life. I, I kind of wish I had a lot of the lessons I've learned here about um, being a leader, being a manager, uh, strategy, whatever you have, and wish I could take it back to some of my prior startups. But you know, you can't go back. You can only go forward. Um, and uh, you know, probably the third thing. I mean, it 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 is related to the second is just you know raw leverage and learning. So so because of the scale of Shopify, when you have ideas uh, and you can make them and you can learn about a space, the leverage that we have to have impact on the world is significant. So I guess maybe I call number three is impact, right? So the mission, the growth, and the impact that you can have is really fundamental. Maybe the fourth and probably really important is it's very fun. Like I find this to be a fun place. Uh, it's intense, but uh, I, I, there's something someone told me early on in my career, and I feel like the whole company does it, which is you take the work very seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. And I find that a lot with Shopify folk. They're, they're down to earth. They're, they're, they're funny. They're fun. I, I think I've just genuinely built real friendships here. Um, and so, you know, I could go on for another half an hour, but those are probably the top reasons why I'm really having a great time uh, being, being an exec here at Shopify. And with your role currently at Shopify, what is the main focus? So I saw on your LinkedIn, like bring demand to merchants and merchants to demand. Like, what does that, what does that mean? What do you specifically work on? Um, is demand like products like audiences and things like that? Or is it other stuff? Like what does demand mean in a Shopify context? Yeah, that, that I mean, great summary. I'm, I'm glad the message is getting out. It's working, Evan. Um, yeah. So look, we, represent millions of merchants. We're a platform for them to build their own businesses. And ultimately, it's up to them to build their own businesses. But there are things that we can do that they can't do alone. Um, you'll often hear about the idea of like, we're arming the rebels. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is, and, and not just me, but the entire team I work with, what we're trying to do are build products and services that we can offer to our merchants that help them find customers. I mean, that's what demand is. And these are, you know, primarily direct to consumer, they're, they're, or uh, they're retail businesses, they sell products. And you know, if you have it, it's not that complicated. You need to find people who want to buy it. Um, and we can do that uh, using our scale, our leverage, our, uh, our, our data, our um, technology, our relationships. Um, and we can use that to build products to help them find customers. It's pretty simple. Um, and you know, basically, how do you do that? You do that in two ways. You either bring the merchant to where a customer is. So um, uh, the uh, team that I work with is responsible for helping uh, our merchants integrate with large marketplaces or large social platforms like Meta or Google. Um, and uh, that's, that's really powerful. You're bringing the merchant to where lots of people are. And then secondly, there's the opportunity to bring um, audiences and, and eyeballs to the merchant's website, like bring those customers there. So similarly, those integrations, but also products like audiences you mentioned. Um, but another product would be a product called collabs where influencers have become incredibly important to how people purchase. Um, and it's like, how do you essentially match make and then manage and make it easy to have a business relationship for merchants to connect, find, and then and build a relationship with a influencer who likes their products. So that's Collab. It's growing amazingly well. I'm so excited. Have an amazing founder there, Mike Schmidt, and uh, also another amazing founder, Anika Khan, who's there. Um, and uh, so that that's kind of what demand is. I, actually, I probably should add an item to your prior question, and I'm sorry I missed it. 
because I just mentioned two important people, two founders. One of the things that makes Shopify amazing to stay at is that it is a very founder-friendly place. Um, more than friendly, I think um, Toby and Harley really understand that uh, founders of companies uh, have gone through a lot and uh, have a kind of way of looking at the world that is very uh, different from many other folks. It, it doesn't mean it's better, but it's different. And it can be really powerful as you grow a business with all these founders running around. And there are just tons of folks who have gone through that experience, both people we've acquired and people that we've hired who have been founders. Um, people often ask, how do I get a job at Shopify? And one of my answers is, well, start a company, start a Shopify store, start a, start a Shopify app, do that first. And I think we're going to always look uh, really positively on people who have had that experience because we value founders. But anyway, back to your second question. That's what demand is about. It's about really thinking about what we can do to, um, you know, bring unfair advantage. If you're a Shopify merchant, you should want to be on Shopify because it's the absolute best place across all the opportunities to figure out how to drive customers to your store. And given that people sell across many channels, they'll sell in-store through retail, they'll sell online, they'll sell on their website, they'll sell in a marketplace. Uh, we really are thinking about how we can make that incredibly easy, seamless, uh, and simple so that you as a merchant can focus on what you do best, which is building a great product, providing great service. And, and I think part of it also is like balancing things out, right? Like giant corporations, giant retailers have huge teams of machine learning and scientists. They have people working with um, influencers. They have ad agencies. They are, you know, doing all sorts of things with data. Um, you know, small merchants, someone in their home who's created a great product that's very niche and specialized just doesn't have that. And that's not fair. Um, so mention number one is the mission. I think it's about like making it a fair playing field uh, ultimately is what I, I kind of like demand to be about that, that anyone in the world who has a great product and should have customers, we can make it easier for them to figure it out. Like I said, they have to still do the work, but we can really help them. So that's what our team does. So Shopify's done quite a bit of acquisitions that have become popular products within Shopify. And there's a lot of different founders running around the company. How have you, other execs, Toby, um, really managed that and really made it a successful, um, made Shopify successful through these acquisitions, which I find is, is, is quite unique if you look at the Canadian tech ecosystem? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I can't speak for him. I'll speak for myself, what mm -hmm. I've observed. Uh, uh, probably a few things. Um, like number one is just being explicit about the value of what we're acquiring, which is the founder. And uh, it's not the only thing, of course, but it's a really important thing. And making sure that that is a good experience. It's a positive experience. Um, you know, going from being an independent CEO to being uh, uh, an executive or an employee or a leader inside of a company is, 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 a, is a journey. It's a psychological journey. There's a lot going on. It's a whole other podcast. Um, but I think uh, Shopify has been really sensitive to that, understands it, um, and has always worked to make that a really good experience. So that's, that's incredible. Um, like even the folks who lead our uh, function, we, we don't call it M&A, we call it product acceleration. A, they're product leaders. And B, they are people who were acquired themselves. Like they know exactly what the journey is and they have a lot of empathy for that. So that's, that's really important. Um, second is the right amount of autonomy and accountability. Um, I think that's really important. Um, uh, you know, 
it's not like, okay, shut the hell up. You are now an employee here and, you know, don't get outside your, don't color outside your lines. I think there's a fair amount of flexibility um, and appreciation of the kind of spiky nature, but also the orthogonal insights that founders bring and how they look at things differently. Um, so that's really important. It also allows a founder to sort of not feel stifled once they've come in. They've instead been accelerated, like truly been accelerated. Like, hey, here is jet fuel, here is resources. And, and, and also like, uh, and then I think the last part is community, right? And so, um, you know, not in a, in, a, in a negative way, both the founders who've been employed uh, hired and also founders been acquired that we just know each other. We, you, we're a support network. We talk to each other. We, uh, you know, kibitz and joke around with each other. We sometimes hang out with each other. And that's really positive because as I said, it is a journey. It is something different. Um, uh, maybe, maybe related to number two is also empowerment. I mean, no question that like leadership says, Hey, you, you see things differently. If you see something silly or doesn't make sense or is slowing us down, um, doesn't, isn't logical, doesn't resonate with your kind of founder DNA, say something, you know, say something and you're empowered to kind of that change happen. Um, and you know, I don't think that happens in other places. Like I, I, I in fact, I know I, I get calls from founders. They call me and ask me, they're like, I've been acquired. And like, this is crazy. What am I doing? I keep getting told to shut up and like have to do politics all the time. There's all these rules and they're stupid, but I can't do anything about it. That, that does not happen here. Um, and maybe the last part is, uh, relates to sort of you asked why am i at shopify you know that thing about growth and getting better isn't just about individuals it's about every part of the business that's important and so there is a concerted effort at shopify that i've seen i've been part of to get better at everything i just talked about like how do we make sure founders are 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 comfortable and are unleashed and have autonomy but also you know not running around like crazy people but they're actually driving in the right direction have the right aim have the right support um that's not easy. That is not something, as you pointed out, like quite most people screw that up. This place has been really conscious of that. Um, I know, like, have, like, you know, well, getting into all the details, I spent a lot of time learning about how other people did it and then thinking, how can we do this in a totally different way? And how can we continually get feedback to make sure that we're doing a really good job of it? And when we don't get it right, which does happen, it's like, what can we learn? How can we retro? How can we improve that? So we just keep getting better and better at this thing, which is a, a really powerful thing that's unique and different. How have you kept that kind of like learner mindset? You know, I've heard a lot from what you've just been saying of like that focus on improvement, getting better, building, you know, that kind of culture and energy within Shopify. How have you kind of maintained that throughout your career of, you know, multiple sex successful time founders with, with, uh, with an exit? you know, your VP exec at Shopify, like how do you really maintain either, it doesn't have to be humbleness, but like how do you remain with that learner mindset and openness to like learn and like, hey, I still have things to learn even though I've had like this success in my career. Uh, a couple of things, a few thoughts about that. So one, I read a book uh, a long while ago called uh, Growth, or I think it's called no, it's called Mindset. Sorry. It's called Mindset. It's by Carol Dweck. She's a psychologist at, at Stanford University. And it, it really impacted me. Um, you should go read it. It's got some really simple ideas, but basically articulates that there's a fixed mindset where you attribute everything you have as, as about being you. Like, I'm good at math, therefore I can do math. I'm good at startups. I'm a good decoder. And then, um, you know, if you don't do well at something, it's because you're just not good at it. You can't do it. Um, and that's a fixed mindset. And then there's a growth mindset, which is like, actually, you have the capacity to learn enormous amounts of things. 
Um, you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to fail. But every time you fail and you have a mistake, that is an opportunity for you to introspect and to learn and to then get better at it. Um, and so it's, you know, TLDR. People who have growth mindsets tend to do better over the long term and you can shift your mindset. So reading that book was important to me because I realized, okay, how do I want to live my life? I want to have a growth mindset. I want to try and get better at things. Second is, I mean, I get bored easily and you get bored when you're in stasis. You keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Uh, I think Amanda Lang wrote a book called The Beauty of Discomfort. Um, and it's an interesting point. Like you, you don't want to be sitting in a spot where you're, it's, it's always easy. You, you want to be just at that edge where you're like, okay, this is not necessarily something I know how to do. Um, it does probably require a little bit of being willing, like you have to let go of your ego a little bit. Every, and, and, and I think maybe that's a third point. Like I've not always done it this way. I alluded to it earlier, things I wish I would have learned, but like there were definitely times when I was tight and fixed and thought I had to have all the answers or I have to do it right. And it doesn't work well. Like that's like, I would attribute any failure I've had to this idea that like I had to know or I had to be good at it. And, uh, and everyone thought I need to be the right person and, and, and to have all the right answers. But in fact, that's just not, that's not where my success has come from. It's actually been the opposite. It's being uncomfortable, being in a spot where I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Um, and, and then saying, Hey, fuck it, I'm going to go try and figure this out. I'll try and learn as quick as I can and be open about the journey that I, I make mistakes. Um, I'd say maybe two, two other points on this theme because it is important. Obviously, you can tell it resonates with me. One is like I figured out somewhere in university that like I didn't have any special skill other than my ability to learn. Like that is the learn. That's the core meta skill that you learn how to learn, right? Like um, in law school a little bit, maybe that was it because like you think you're going to law school to learn like a set of codes and laws. And then what you find out pretty much after first year is that like, Nope, that's not it. What you learn is a set of meta skills about how to learn about a particular area of law, whether it's like securities law or property law or anything. And like how like there's a process. You've got to read journal articles. You've got to read all the important cases, figure out the important cases, figure out what the key of ratio dicidende are, figure out what the key insights of the cases are so that you can then say like, oh, I kind of understand the space and then you can keep going. And you're like, oh, what you're really learning is how to learn stuff. And when you figure that out, that's, that's really powerful. That's a like that's a, a, a turbocharger. Last thing I'd say is like it does require you to let go of your ego. Ego is the killer. It's never helped me. Every time I've tried to be ego filled, it's always resulted in like negative outcomes. And 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 it's surprisingly disarming. Like I, I mean, even just this morning, like I was talking to someone. I, the people I work with are all way smarter than me. They know so much more about the stuff that I'm trying to think about. And I'm very open about it. I'm like. Um, I'm dumb. Can you teach me about this? And I will sit with people for hours. I mean, it's one of the privileges I have is I can kind of get their time. And I'm like, can you just, okay, explain it to me again like I'm a four-year-old because I kind of am a four-year-old. Like, just take me through it again. And until I can understand something, I can't do it. So, uh, yeah, that, that, but that, I think a lot of people are unwilling to do that because um, they want to like, be seen to be an expert, be seen to know the answer, be not be seen to be wrong. And one of my mentors, Roger Martin, taught me about this guy, Chris Ardris at Harvard University, who, who did 
research on this, like on like the number one motivator of a lot of people is, is like, don't fail. It's not succeed. It's don't fail. Um, and I resonated with that. And so, but when you, when you just are open that like, we're all learning together and none of us knows the answers, you might know a lot more than me. So maybe teach me and you're willing to do that. That, that is the root. That is the key thing. Um, the willingness to just try shit, um, and not worry about looking stupid as you try it. I'd be curious. So you co-founded a few companies. You also do a lot of angel investment. So you've been through that product market fit cycle, looking for it, finding it. Do you find that it's different at Shopify at scale or is that product market fit the same? Cause I'm, you know, an early stage startup, when they launch something, maybe only 10 people care about it. If you launch something at Shopify, it could potentially be millions. So do you, is there a different process? Is it different or there are some similarities finding uh, product market fit? Great question. Um, and, you know, one of the things I love about my job is and I definitely get sort of a bunch of kind of startup-y bets inside Shopify. Early stage things like, what about this? Can we try it? I, I naturally gravitate towards that. And part of why I love my job. Um, it is both different and it is the same. It is this different because yes, when you launch a product with Shopify, you have our distribution advantage, you know, you have access to those customers and you have trust, you know, Shopify rightfully because it's real, it's not bogus, it's not marketing, really tries to help its merchants, really tries to help its merchants first, puts the merchant economic needs, the merchants, um, requirements before what we're trying to do and tries to listen really carefully to what they want. It, it is the secret, I think, in many cases of the success, just deep, deep merchant empathy and caring about them, being on the same side of the table with that merchant. So they trust us. And so that's an advantage that you get distribution and trust. Uh, you also have advantages of like access to data, access to infrastructure, access to incredibly smart people. So that's different. But it's the same in that, like, there's no magic. If you put out a shitty product and it doesn't really solve a user problem and you don't communicate it well, they don't, people don't use it. Okay. Like Shopify is not have a hundred percent batting record. Um, it's actually probably would be a worrisome sign if we did, it would mean we're not trying enough things with enough pace. Um, so that journey, and I have multiple products right now that are you know not public that are exactly in that stage, early stage. And, you know, and the teams, I mean, Today, yesterday, I was in an all hands with a group and they were, you know, there was 15 of us on a call spending a few hours saying like, this isn't working the way we wanted it to work. Like what's going wrong and what do we fix? And how do we, that's exactly the same. Um, there's no difference. There's no magic. Um, because even if you have all these things, you still have to have a great product. Um, it still has to hit merchant needs. It still has to be communicated to that merchant. It still has to fit into their workflow. It has to be valuable to them above uh, all the other things they could be doing. And so, and you still have to market it too. Like, you know, just because Shopify, I mean, th th yes, we have that advantage, you get it, but it's not like every merchant just magically is like, oh, I'm just going to install this thing. No, they don't. They have to know why. And also remember in the best possible way, Shopify is a platform. It has an open market of 10,000 companies or more who build apps and they're really good. Those apps are excellent. They are excellent founders with good designers and good technology. And you know what? Sometimes what they build is better than what Shopify will build in-house and good for them. They should win. Like um, that's an important those here that um, a lot of people talk about in companies. Oh, no, we're a platform, but we're going to, you know, 
we're going to really make it hard for a partner to succeed. No, Shopify wants the best product to win, even if it beats our own products in-house uh, for merchants. So that is the same. It is still competitive for attention and you have to build something amazing every time. And it's a journey. Like it's not magical. There's no way to accelerate that. I, I, it is exactly what people go through on their own. They have that endless, you know, iterative cycle. We tried this. It didn't work. We pivoted. We tried that. It didn't work. We changed the team. We tried this tactic. We tried this different marketing. And, and you know what else is the same? Shopify doesn't fund it forever. In fact, the opposite, like that's of my job is to say enough like hey you're you've been spending you know you've had enough shots you've you've kind of got enough capital we've spent money on this and we're gonna try something different now the nice thing is that most of the time most of those people just get to go do something different inside the company try another thing it's not a sin to have failed i have failed personally in launching products at shopify no one's ever come to me and said oh you're a failure no that's part of the journey of learning that's part of how you build things you have to try and sometimes it doesn't work um, so yeah, I hope, hope that answers that question. On that thread of bad batting average, you're also a very active angel investor. You've invested in a ton of different companies. How has early stage like angel investing really impacted, you know, maybe your career, that kind of growth mindset you talked about? And obviously you probably learned a laundry list of things, but what are some top things that you've seen from doing the amount of investments you've done? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. First, unfortunately, I'm not that active anymore as an angel, uh, probably for a couple of reasons. One is there are so many more angels in Canada now. Like when I was early on doing this 15 years ago, I was a little alone as like, there were lots of angels, but I was like somewhat crazy uh, in the kind of risks I was taking. Um, now there's lots of crazy risk takers, which is good. There can always be more. Uh, the other is it just time, like it takes time to do that well. And, and I have to I have four little kids. I have a lot of other projects going on, um, other businesses I kind of have dabbled in. And so um, I just don't have the time to do it. Um, but but yes, I definitely have done a lot, probably over 100 investments, and still sometimes I will do it. Um, the thing is, you know, you asked about my first job. I worked at this startup. There were like 10 people when I started, six. I don't know how many it was. It was a small number. And one of the things I did was a lot of hiring and recruiting because I couldn't code. It was kind of useless. I would just do everything but build product. I was an engineer. I didn't know the domain space. So I would go off and find people. And that process was actually the predecessor to me becoming an angel investor. It wasn't the opposite. It was having to help build WorkBrain and hiring and interviewing hundreds of people, lots of young people, many of whom went on subsequently to become founders themselves. And similarly at Ripple, like many of them went on to start companies that were way more successful, like multi-hundred million dollar exits. Um, it was a journey of figuring out what kind of person is a founder, who has the founder spirit, um, and how can you figure that out relatively quickly? So what happened is it, it was that journey that then I think made me into an angel investor especially one who was investing very, very early on. Because whereas I think other people were looking for signals of product market fit, other people were looking for like, show me your first million in revenue. I was like, it's three people in a room with a whiteboard. But I had done enough hiring to be like, I, this team probably could do it. This founder maybe can do it. By no means is the track record 100%. It would be a mistake to try and get that same reason uh, you want to make a lot of mistakes in, in kind of angel because you're going to get a few really, really big 
outcomes that make up for everything. You're not trying to piss your money away, but, but you can't know. So you have to have a diversified portfolio. Um, but it was a portfolio about betting on people. Also, you know, I am not a quantum scientist. I am not a geneticist. I'm not an AI engineer. I'm not a, like any of the kinds of companies I've invested in, but I'm pretty good at figuring out, okay, this is a founder. This person thinks that way, thinks orthogonally, has that intensity. I had figured out a few signals or heuristics of like what in their past would suggest that they would therefore in the future be this. And so that was actually the key thing and still is the key thing for me, which is you're investing in people. You're taking a bet. Like, And, and even in the case of the companies that I've invested in that were successful, um, very few of them ended up being the thing that when it was three people that they were going to be. It just doesn't ha often happen that way. So people, that's what you're betting. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. And the first question would be, you already mentioned some books that you really like, but what is your favorite book? And if you can't pick a favorite, what's something you're currently reading? Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite book. I, the thing that pops to my head of the past few years was a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a powerful book. Lots of people suggest it. And for good reason, it's really great. It's deep. You can reread it. It's heavy duty. It's a, it's a Holocaust book. It's not, uh, it's not sunshine and, and butterflies, but also has a very uplifting uh, message about what are we doing here and, and how to find meaning in your life. So uh, I think that's really a, a great one. In terms of like what I'm reading right now, I think I'm reading a book called Story of Our Success, which is kind of a anthropology book, uh, evolutionary anthropology about how cooperation and our ability to imic imitate and learn is a key adaptive uh, feature of humanity. I'm reading a book called The Science of Storytelling. Um, I just read a book called Smart Brevity, which is like 100 pages long. Someone here recommended it. It's awesome. Um, it's a really good one about how to communicate uh, crisply and concisely. Uh, reading a book called Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg uh, about just how to kind of make change in your life, kind of constantly grow. Um, that's probably it. I have a few others. I, I, I have used to be a like one book at a time. I have to finish it, a reader. And now I've moved to like have five or six on the go, have them around the house in different spots. Don't get upset if you don't finish it. You can always come back to it. It's actually more satisfying for me. Yeah, I've, ad I've adopted that mindset this year and it's made reading a lot more enjoyable. What are you most excited about in the next 12 months, professionally and personally? Uh, well, professionally, uh, Shopify. Shopify is, is killing it. <laughs> and, and there are a bunch of really exciting products in the pipeline generally and and on in my or in the in the demand portfolio there's some really exciting products that are in the pipeline that I'm excited for the world and excited for our merchants to get to use I think they're really going to be impactful I think they're things that'll help them on that mission that we have uh, I also think there's some products that we've launched that are like now really kind of getting to that product market fit and like really getting like way way better than they used to be uh audiences you mentioned that like that's a product that is really really hard to do and a really uh tons of incredibly smart people have been working on it and it is so much better than it was when we launched it uh, just nine uh ten months ago i'm really excited we're, we're going to probably talk more about that to the world uh in coming months so yeah i'm excited about uh the growth all the new things that we're doing uh all the strategies coming together um that's fun um uh personally um, 
I'm a musician and it's a, it's a real passion for me. Um, my partners and I are opening a new recording studio um, uh, in, in the woods. And that will be uh, a really special thing for, I think, the music community in Canada. So that's been a labor of love. I'm excited about that. That's going to be really fun. Um, and then we also have uh, some projects in Toronto around music. And, and we're thinking about a live venue, a special, unique kind of venue that's really for lovers of music. And so that's in the very early stages, but hopefully that'll come to fruition. Um, I don't know. Those are, those are kind of the things that, that pop to mind. What type of music do you play? And like, what are some, who are some of your favorite artists? <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know what the style would be. It's probably like, uh, soul, jazz, RB, um, sometimes fusion. Uh, but I've just been lucky to have kind of a circle of musician friends, most of whom are pro musicians. I figured out that they don't get to play for fun. So I, I kind of, with some partners, created a space where they could play for fun. Um, and boy, if you want to get better at something, maybe to our earlier thing, if you be humble and say, I don't know enough, but I'm going to be with people who are way better. And that's been a really great journey for me as a musician to play with these folks. Um, and so uh, I think that's kind of like the style and that's kind of how we do it. But basically what it means is like, we just improvise. Like people will come in and be like, do you know this song? Do you know this song? We're going to play this. And you know, different musicians come by. So it's, it's sort of whatever. And that's kind of the fun of being able to pick it up. That's to get to that level of musicianship. And I'm certainly not, not there's such a long journey and a never ending journey to get through, but I'm definitely, I love that part. Um, and then um, in terms of, I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? I forgot. Oh, who are some artists that you really oh artists look up to? who do I really like? I mean, I love a band called uh, the Tadashi Trucks band. I love Derek Trucks. I love uh, a bass player called Pino Palladino, who's 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 kind of a session bass player, but he's he's played with John Mayer, he's played with the Who, he's he's played with everybody. I really love the band Wolfpack. Uh, they're out these days. They're incredibly nice human beings and uh, uh, really great players. A, a bass player named Joe Dart, a lead singer, Theo Katzman, uh, uh, Jack Stratton. Um, I'm, I'm excited to say those are all Shopify merchants too. <laughs> the Wolfpack. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I think they're, I think they're, I think those are, those are ones that I really, uh, like, but I, you know, I, I love, uh, a ton of different types of music. That's super cool. There's a, uh, there's a great, there's a great line. I think it was Duke Ellington who said there's only two types of music, good music and bad music. So I just try to listen to good music. It, it doesn't matter what kind. Um, yeah, last question before I open up the mic to you, but just how do you deal with hard times? You've been a, a founder, you know, working at a super large company, have to learn a lot and grow. How do you deal with hard times? Um, well, first of all, you're right. I mean, I definitely have had hard times. It's, 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 not, it's, it's, it's lots of challenges. Lots of things don't go always well in life. Um, and sometimes, you know, actually, I just say it because I think it's important people hear. I, I like I've even been depressed, like really depressed, not like sad, but like actual depression. Um, and that was really hard. That was really hard. It was one of the worst times in my life. Um, how do I deal with it? Well, talk to people. Um, one of the most magical things as I was so depressed was someone gave me this advice is just talk to your friends. And then you're amazed. I was amazed. They're like, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I've been depressed, too. Or I'm taking these meds or this is what I do. And you're like, really? You too? And. And then you start to realize like, oh, this is, this is normal. This is a thing that happens. So 
Um, and I've had that conversation with friends too, saying like, you're not alone. Like, this is not something abnormal about you. I have friends going through it now. Um, talk to people, talk to a therapist, a coach, talk to your friends. You'll find out that people have gone through it. It, it is incredibly powerful. Um, exercise, like I'm not talking about necessarily just going for a walk, uh, getting to sunlight, really helpful. Um, finding other outlets. I mean, music for me has been that thing. Like it's a thing where like you have to put your mind on hold. You can't be playing a fact. You can't be improvising with like really other great musicians and worrying about the thing that you're fucking up at. You have to just focus on that. Otherwise you'll mess that up. And that's pretty important. Um, meditation. I've uh, had a practice uh, on and off and it's, it's actually a really powerful thing, useful thing to do. Probably the most important thing, like by far the most important thing is, is a family that I have. I have an incredible partner, amazing wife. She is awesome. Um, and she's been always been there for me. Um, I'm really lucky, you know, and that also is not always something that's like easy. You have to invest in your relationships and make them work. Um, and I have, you know, four kids and, and they're, they're really good at saying, you know, this thing that you're worried about, about your job, like we don't care. It doesn't matter. That's not important. And they don't say that. They just, they're like, dad, let's go to the park, dad, let's go outside. And, and really trying to be present in them. It helps. It helps a lot. Um, maybe the last is to, uh, um, you know, have perspective, right. Uh, of, of where you are. Um, most people in Canada today, most entrepreneurs are luckier than most humans who have ever lived in the entire history of humanity. Like uh, even today you're luckier. Um, you know, people like to talk about privilege these days. Well, it's a privilege to just be alive in North America. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, of course, everyone has challenges and not everybody comes from the same spot. Being aware of how lucky we are, um, being free, like truly free to say what you want, be who you are, walk where you want to go. These are things that you shouldn't take for granted. Honestly, uh, um, like <laughs> sounds silly, but just being grateful for little things. Like I try to make a practice sometimes when I turn the water on to like brush my teeth and just think about the fact that like this magical thing just happened. I just turned a dial and fresh, clean water came out. I didn't have to walk for it. I didn't have to hunt for it. I wasn't starving. And it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that and all the nonsense that we go through every day and see on social media. But you shouldn't forget that stuff. You should be grateful for it because it is a magical thing that the vast majority of humans who've ever lived and who even currently live don't get to have. You know, running water, heat, things like that. It's a great reminder. Uh, I'd just like to open up the mic to you to chat about anything, whether it's music, advice, how people can get in touch with you, what, whatever you'd want to chat about. Uh, sure. I have about let that because I think we're getting to the end of our time. Yep. Um, you know, I'm 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 on Twitter, probably to my detriment, but uh, you can find me there. It's uh, D D E B O W. Uh, my DMs are open. I try to be responsive. I can't always be. Um, and you can also email me at d d e b o w at gmail dot com. Um, Usually, it's far better for me to just give advice in text. I can't write. I can't always get on a call. And you know, don't be upset by that. Um, but I try if I can. If someone gives me a specific and good question, I will answer it. I can't really answer like, "What should I do with my life?" And I want to pick your brain for an hour. Can I just get on? I don't. 
I can't do that anymore. But um, but I will try and answer people. So they should they should reach out if there's something that they wanted to chat about. Um, I hope this has been a helpful podcast. I hope this is good. I'm glad that you're doing it. And uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, appreciate you taking the time, Daniel, and appreciate the insights. And thanks again. No problem. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.